This is the Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors, where you'll hear about many aspects of law in England and Wales with special guests, industry experts, and local charities. Here's your host, Amanda Jones. Hello, and welcome to season four of the Legal Lounge. If you haven't heard the shows in the first three seasons, there's plenty of content for you if you're going through a divorce, want to know more about claiming for injuries, or if you're training to be a lawyer. You'll also meet some amazing local charities and learn about the work they do. You can listen to these shows on your favourite podcast app and get more information by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. Back for a second podcast with us, Jack Fallows from Herald Wealth Management is speaking with private client solicitor David Pugh. Following a successful seminar at the Robert Jones and Agnes Hunt Orthopaedic Hospital in Gaboen, Jack and David answer many of the frequently asked questions the staff at the hospital raised, including those relating to salary sacrifice, capital gains tax, childcare allowances, and part-time working. When financial planning, please consider that your capital is at risk. Tax legislation is subject to change and depends upon your personal circumstances. Hi, I'm David and welcome back, Jack. It's quite nice to be invited back. Uh, I can hopefully assume that the last one was an absolute car crash, so. <laughs> I think that's a fair assumption to make. I think I think it did all right, Jack. So yeah, so hopefully we can do the same today again. So. The reason that you're here today is to discuss something that's still pretty close to your heart and something that has worked incredibly well for us because since we did our last podcast, we were invited by a lovely lady, uh, Laura Peel, who is the Assistant Chief Executive for the Robert Jones and Agnes Hunt Orthopaedic Hospital to come in and give a talk there. Laura asked us if we could do something to help specifically with the hospital's initiative to help medics and staff with the cost of living crisis. Before we went, she provided us with generally the frequently asked questions that both Laura and the other members within the hospital had and wanted us to provide as much information and hopefully some answers to those individuals. We came up with the seminar, we put it together and we called it Money Matters. We had a great turnout and there really was very positive feedback. But we were also told that unfortunately a number of people weren't able to attend. And as such, we were asked to come back, provide another seminar, and in the meantime, whether we could actually provide them with our seminar slides. Now, because we're incredibly supportive people and we like to help as much as we can, our words to Laura were, absolutely not. We cannot provide you these these slides. Our compliance team would have an absolute conniption. Um, <laughs> therefore, instead of that, we've decided one of the best ways that we can try and get this information across to both the staff in our JAH and actually to any NHS staff member is to put this podcast together and try and answer a lot of those questions that we did in the seminar. With that, if you want to just give a little overview of what it is we're going to discuss throughout the rest of the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think I'd usually be saying thank you to compliance, but compliance are kind of the reason we came up with this idea, weren't they? Because in English, I think compliance would have gone ape, wouldn't they, if we started sharing slides. But thanks to them, that's why we're doing this podcast now. So as you said, yeah, we did the 
the seminar at RJH, as we'll refer to them now, that orthopaedic hospital in Oswestry, went down really well. But the the overview in terms of what we went through that day, and like you said, this was based on the frequently asked questions that Laura was getting from people within the hospital, whether that be medics or staff, was number one, how the hell does your NHS pension work? Number two was what is the impact of working part-time on your NHS pension? There was questions about kind of inheritance tax, wills, and lasting powers of attorney as well. Then there was a spattering of questions around the child benefit charge. What is that? How does it work? Is it something I need to be concerned about? What is the impact of salary sacrifice on your NHS pension? And in particular, questions were being asked about leasing cars and what would happen there. And then finally, where should you put your money in uncertain times? And this was all filtering into maybe a theme that was coming up around the cost of living crisis. And so it's, it was our way of helping with the hospital's initiative to help their staff and, and, and so on with the pressures that you feel through that. So that is exactly what we'll be going through today. Yeah, and one of the important things that we should say, a bit like the seminar itself, important things to note is that we have removed the majority of the nuances. We've tried to make sure that this is going to be a non-jargon zone. Um, very difficult sometimes, but we have tried our best. Again, we will try and make sure on the podcast today we're not too number heavy. What we don't want you to do or is to lose track of where we are. So we are going to try give you the main pertinent points and information without being too heavy for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I work with numbers for a living, but when you get a podcast that's just full of numbers, it's like R2D2's hosting a podcast, which the amount of people that have them now actually wouldn't put it past him. What we would have looked at first in the actual seminar was how does your NHS pension work? But I'm actually going to point you in the direction of our previous podcast, which was exactly that. How does your NHS pension work? Episode one, season three, that was on the 25th of July, if you go on your podcasts app or on the Lanyon Bowdler website, and that's, yeah, 25th of July. And it was called Understanding the NHS Pension. So I'm going to glide over now to the impact of part-time hours on the NHS pension. This question was coming up quite frequently. I think it was kind of top of the pile, really, in terms of part-time hours, the impact on the NHS pension. I'm not quite sure whether that was due to just general working patterns changing during and post-COVID, but regardless, that was really, really up there for um, medics and members of staff at RJH. So we set about answering that. Now, I'm going to have to split this down into the different schemes of the NHS pension so that you can understand the impact on them. So for the 1995 and the 2008 scheme, I'm going to put them together and just say, if you were to reduce your working hours, it will not affect the benefit you have already built up. And it also will not affect the salary used to calculate your pension. That might initially sound like that's a really good outcome. Fantastic. And I'm going to reduce my hours. It's going to have no impact on my pension. But that's where it gets a bit muddy because the reason it will not affect the salary used to calculate your pension is because the pension uses something called whole time equivalent. Okay, and what that's basically saying is it will affect the length of membership that you build up. So I'm just going to give you a bit of an example to illustrate that because frequently when people read the 
guides on the NHS pension. They read the first two bullet points, what affect my benefits, what affect my salary. Fantastic, but it will affect your length of membership. This is a really important bit to understand. So let's just say, for example, 36 hours is full time. And I'm using quite nice and convenient rounded figures here to just make the, this maths work nice and easy on the podcast. Let's just say 36 hours is full time and you are working 24 hours, which is part time. Now, full time, you would be paid £27,000 per year. But instead, because you work part-time, you're earning £18,000 per year. You have worked in the NHS for six years, okay? So that's six years service and that's six years membership of the pension that you have. Now, the whole time equivalent is basically a, a quick calculation. So you take the 24 hours that you're working part-time, you divide them by the 36 hours, which is full-time, and then you times that by six because that's the amount of years that you've served in the NHS and been a member of the pension. Now, if you divide 24 by 36 and you times it by six, you've got those three numbers there, it gives you one figure, which is four. That's a really important number because if you remember I said, you've done six years service in the NHS, you've been a member of the NHS pension for six years. However, your whole time equivalent, if you were to have worked part-time, would be four, four years service. So for that calculation, what I'm trying to say here is, even though you earn £18,000 per year, for the calculation of your pension, they are taking the full-time, whole-time equivalent, which is £27,000, but they're doing that based on you having worked in the NHS four years, not six. So you can see the difference between the two is, yes, you can reduce your hours, and no, it won't necessarily reduce the benefits you've already built up, and it won't affect the salary used to calculate your pension, but it will affect the amount of years they use to calculate that pension. So working part-time hours absolutely does reduce your benefits going forwards in the 95 and 08 schemes. However, a lot of people now will be in the 2015 scheme. So let's move on to that. In the 2015 scheme, it's far easier to work with. So I can say categorically, it will reduce the pension that you accrue each year. And that is because the pension you earn each year is based on your actual pensionable pay. You're kind of contributing to the pot each year. It's not based on that whole time equivalent pay. Very interesting indeed, Jack. It, it just does show you how important it is for each uh, NHS member to consider their pension when they are potentially looking at reducing their hours for whatever circumstances that may be. Well, that's really important, actually, because is this a question of your wealth or is it a question of your health? Because yes, let's say you reduce your working hours, but if that's to give you a better work-life balance, as cliched as that might sound, that's a real thing. So yes, you're going to be reducing the benefits you accrue moving forwards, but if that's giving you a far better balance, more time at home, a better standard of living in general, reduced stress, um, which is going to have a knock-on effect on your general health and well-being. Really, I think it's not just a financial question. It's a question of what's the impact of this going to be on your health in the immediate term as well, working less hours. And I think that's a really important thing for people to come to terms with. And hence, that's why I say not just a financial question. It's also somewhat of a health question as well. So one of the other things that we were asked to talk a little bit about was inheritance tax. Now, there was a number of people thought it wasn't relevant to them until we actually discussed it in a little bit more detail. And the reason people thought it wasn't relevant to them is because of the old adage of, well, it's a tax on the rich. 
But that is not necessarily the case nowadays. I would say that, unfortunately, for many, inheritance tax is now a tax on the general population. And the reasons for such is because of the actual thresholds that are in place. So the inheritance tax threshold is known as the nil rate band. And the nil rate band is the level of wealth that you can have until on your death, there could potentially be inheritance tax paid on the value over and above that nil rate band. So at the minute, the current nil rate band is £325,000 for an individual. When we look at a, a, a couple, uh, so spouses, husbands, wives, civil partners, then we quite often look at them in conjunction with one another and we look at doubling up that threshold because quite often, not necessarily always the case, but they would normally leave everything to one another on the first death. And anything between a spouse uh, to the other, whether during their lifetime or on their death, is spouse exempt. There wouldn't be inheritance tax to pay on that. So that's our basis for a couple is looking at £650,000. There are some other things to take into consideration. And there is a Another threshold as well that comes in as well, known as the residence nil rate band. And that's when a residence is ultimately passing to a lineal descendant. So children, grandchildren, etc. And that can be up to another £175,000 per individual. So if a married couple had a property ultimately passing to children and that property was worth £350,000 or more, again, taking away any nuances, then their total threshold could potentially be up to a million pounds. Now, that sounds absolutely fantastic. Who doesn't like to hear one million pounds? You know, that's a lot of knots. But if we take that back a step and actually look at it in real terms, is that actually a great threshold to have or not? Well, the nil rate band itself, the £325,000, has been the threshold since 2009. We're now in 2023. And it hasn't changed, nor is it going to change until at least 2028. However, in the same period of time, from, from 2005 right through to 2022, the average house price has nearly doubled from 150000 near enough to £300,000. So I would say the thresholds aren't quite keeping pace with that. And it's starting to pull in a lot of people that did not think that inheritance tax was an issue into that bracket. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because people can potentially take some really good advice and do a little bit of planning around their estates, whether that's involving their wills or other lifetime planning. Now, some of those types of issues are actually discussed on other podcasts within the, the legal lounge. And I would suggest that if you've got the opportunity, listen to a good number of those because they will provide you with some excellent bits of information. Yeah, that's something I see a lot as well now, David, is where people think inheritance tax is that tax for the rich, but now they're getting caught by it as well. And it, it feels quite punitive as well, because it's kind of at the latter end of your career or your life where you really start to realise, crikey, I'm above the thresholds that the government have set before I start incurring inheritance tax. It's a bit like your reward for working bloody hard your whole life. Mm. Well done. Uh, we now want some of that when you pop your clogs. That's not the only tax though, is it, to have stayed the same whilst the cost of living and the cost of 
property and so on has, has gone up over time. It, there's, there's a few others, isn't there? There is indeed. And actually, I would say that uh, there is a tax that instead of actually staying the same is now being reduced. So if you are aware of capital gains tax, which is a tax when you either sell property investments or other potential items for more than you originally purchased them for, you could end up paying capital gains tax. Now, each individual, as it stands right now in the tax year of 2022-23, has got an annual allowance of £12,300. So they would only be taxed on anything over and above that gain. That is changing from April this year going into the new tax year. And instead of £12,300, we're now looking at £6,000 of being that allowance. Now, that is more than half. And again, from the tax year thereafter, so in April 2024, it is then being halved again to £3,000 for your annual allowance. That is definitely going to catch a lot of people or certainly make their decision-making a lot different from what it currently is. So another consideration to make is actually in relation to gifting. So again, I did what I would call a fantastic podcast with my good colleague, Edward Reese about the pitfalls with gifting property uh, to your loved ones. But let's say we're just talking about gifting cash. Well, a lot of people that I speak to are aware of what we call the seven-year gifting rule. And they understand that if they make large gifts and die within seven years thereafter, that the value could potentially get uh, taken into account for inheritance tax. Well, the one thing that everybody should be aware is you can gift up to £3,000 per year without it having any impact on your inheritance tax estate. Now, again, sounds all well and good, but that gifting allowance of £3,000 has not actually changed since 1981. It is still the same allowance. So again, it just brings us right round in a circle to show that costs, values, everything is increasing, but are the allowances increasing? It certainly appears that they're not, and people will have to look at a lot more planning in the future. Right. So the next thing on the list of questions that Laura Peel received from the RJH Hospital over in Oswestry was the child benefit charge. I get this quite a bit as well. A, a general amount of kind of unfamiliarity as to how it works. Does it affect me? Is it something I should be concerned of? So first of all, I'm going to just give a whistle-stop tour through what it is, and then I'm going to talk about what is the potential issue and whether that could um, cause you some problems. So first of all, it was introduced in 2013 for people who are responsible for bringing up a child. The child must be under 16, or if they're in full-time education, under 20. And effectively, it's help from the state. So your eldest or only child will receive £1,133.60, okay? And then any additional children thereafter are going to receive £751 and 40 pence, and that's per year. Only one person in a household can receive the benefit. 
There's no limit to the quantity of children that can receive that benefit, though. National insurance credits towards your state pension is also a benefit you get here as well. So if you're, for example, staying at home, raising those children, you're still getting your national insurance credits. The reason that's important is because, again, they go towards your state pension. And then your children at age 16 also get um, automatically enrolled onto national insurance as well, so they can start accruing and, and gain those sorts of benefits. Now, what's the issue? You or your spouse or partner, you don't have to be married, it's just living together. If you have a net adjusted income over £50,000, now I'll put that bit of accounting talk into English, which is total income before allowances minus your pension contributions, okay? If that's over £50,000 per year, you're going to get a 1% reduction of your child benefit for every £100 that goes over the £50,000, okay? If you've got an income over £60,000, whether that's you yourself or your spouse or your partner, as long as you're living together under the same roof, if your income's over £60,000, you're going to have lost 100% of that child benefit. That can really pinch people when you consider that for the first or eldest child, that's £1,133 per year and £751 per child thereafter. Again, that might be why we start to get questions on working part-time where people are just trying to make sure that they've got that work-life balance and they're not being kind of penalised for for earning more effectively. Um, Especially with households where you've got families coming together after divorce and you've got new relationships starting up. Um, that also is something to, to bear into consideration where someone else's earnings are now having an impact on you and, and your children. So another topic that we were asked to cover was wills. Now, again, I'm not going to go into too much detail in this podcast, as I know my colleagues have covered this in previous podcasts, getting a nice plug in for for quite a lot of these today. But the one thing that I would say, why is a will important? And the reason I would say getting a will in place is vitally important is because if you care about who actually benefits from your property after your death and you want to avoid causing unnecessary distress, then that is the reason why it is vitally important. So even though there are other considerations such as inheritance tax planning, that is why I would always recommend to somebody to get a will, to try and provide that that certainty. And the other thing that I would remind everybody is that a will is a fluid document. As long as you retain your capacity, you'll always be able to change your will. So if your circumstances ever change, you can change your will and it can reflect your current circumstances. Thank God you answered that because the amount of times I get questions from people to the effect of, do I need a will? (laughs) What happens if I don't have a will? I just refer them straight on to Dr. Death himself, David Pugh, and uh, he he usually set them straight, don't you? (laughs) Okay, so next um, up on the list of frequently asked questions at RGH was, Salary sacrifice, okay, and particularly car leasing. And I get that. We all want a slightly nicer car, don't we? And especially if you can see electric cars coming out and apparently they have a slightly better impact on salary sacrifice. You kind of want in, don't you? However, you need to take into consideration if you're part of the NHS pension How does that affect it? So before I go into car leasing specifically, and this was the case in the seminar, I just said, what is salary sacrifice? So let's just kind of set that straight. So salary sacrifice is in effect reducing your salary 
to pay for something offered through your employer. It's not pensionable. It actually reduces your pensionable pay. So the amount you're sacrificing is going to be taken out before your pension contributions are put into your pension. So examples of this are annual leave purchase, bike to work scheme, childcare vouchers, and then with the NHS, the car lease scheme. Just to distinguish this from another type of salary sacrifice, or so it appears on the surface, is some NHS employers actually offer salary deduction. It can sometimes get muddled up, but they are actually different things. Salary deduction, it doesn't reduce your pensionable pay. So it's a form of reduction from your salary after your pension contributions have been taken. So before you enter into any of these things, my first tip is just check whether it's salary sacrifice would impact your NHS pension or a salary deduction would not affect your NHS pension because that one's going out before your contribution is made, the other is after your contribution is made. So now that we cleared that up, let's just go through the 1995, the 2008, and the 2015 schemes in sequence because different people can be members of different schemes. So if you are sacrificing some salary and you're in the 95 scheme, if that's done within the last three years before you retire, that could affect your pensionable pay because the last three years is the window within it which your um, your pension earnings are calculated. The 2008 scheme, if you decide to sacrifice some of your salary, if that's done within the last 10 years before retirement, that again could affect the pensionable pay used in the calculation for your pension. And then finally, again, the 2015 scheme, I can give you a lot more clarity on that immediately to say, if you are sacrificing your salary, your benefits will reduce. Okay, so then in the seminar, we showed a big table that was a real life example. And in effect, it was a quotation from NHS Fleet Solutions of someone looking at um, quite a snazzy Jaguar I-Pace, which I believe is their electric version, isn't it? It may well be. I'm not the person <laughs> to ask on that. That's a £65,000 car, Google confirmed. So a really nice car. And this person in particular was going to get that for £343 per month which sounds decent. I mean, I'm not much of a car guy, much like you, David, but I know a £65,000 asset and you're paying £343 for that per month. That's a decent deal. Okay, so that can appear very attractive. I'm not going to go through every line on that quotation because that's going to be horrific on a podcast to listen to those figures. We're going to tie ourselves up in knots. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to say, number one, if you go to NHS Fleet Solutions, they will give you an illustration or a quotation before you commit to leasing a car through salary sacrifice. That's going to give you all the information you need. And what you need to look out for on that quotation, that illustration, however it's uh, it's phrased when you go to them, is number one, the total estimated monthly cost. Now that's probably the thing you're gonna get pointed to straight away. If the car salesman goes down with a biro, that's the first thing he's gonna highlight. It's the, this car, it's so, it's so amazing and it's only gonna cost you 343 pounds per month, bargain. Okay, just go up a bit. The very first line or near the top should be your annual gross salary sacrifice. In English, what that means is how much are you diverting away from your NHS pension? 
that's a very different figure. In this example, that's £8,253 per year. So that's a decent amount no longer going into that pension each year. Hopefully from that, you can see we need to be careful not getting wrapped up in that, that shiny new car, as, as lovely as it might look. Sacrificing some of your salary in order to get that car, which might be appealing in the short term, could affect your retirement plans in the long term. That might mean if you do that for a really long period of time, you might have to retire later or you haven't got as much coming to you in form of income from your NHS pension in retirement. That's a big deal. Okay, so it might be worth giving those two options, going for the not so expensive car or not sacrificing any salary instead. Now, this next point, I'm not going to go into too much depth because we could go down an absolute rabbit hole here, David, and I can see you wincing at it. Also, if you do enter a salary sacrifice scheme, say, for example, the NHS Fleet Solutions scheme, it can increase your pension significantly when you finish the lease car scheme. I'm going to stop there, avoid the rabbit hole. That sort of thing, if you've got an accountant, definitely speak to them, okay, before going in and coming out. And again, if you've got a financial advisor who, who knows anything about the NHS pension, again, it's wise to speak to them first. It's not impossible to look at your figures and or at least articulate in general terms how that's going to affect you. But going in, just make sure you're you're looking at the uh, the difference between the total estimated monthly cost, how much it costs, and how much you're sacrificing. That's the first thing. Secondly, make sure someone's explained to you properly what happens if you come out of that, because it can have quite an impact on your NHS pension. I'm just going to add one little thing in there as well. Benefits in kind. This is never mentioned when people are talking about having some form of benefit through their employer. Okay, so this could be like I mentioned the lease car scheme through the NHS, but this goes for outside of the NHS as well. Benefits in kind aren't usually mentioned and especially not by that car salesman who wants to, <laughs> to flog you that car. Okay, so HMRC, when you've received a benefit like that from your employer, that sort of benefit, the car, they'll see that as though you've earned it. So I'm just going to use a very round figure here so it's easy to understand. Let's just say that your benefit is the equivalent of receiving £100 per month. HMLC say, well, yeah, we know that's not technically receiving £100 in your bank account, but that's the value of a benefit that you're receiving that could have otherwise been cash. Therefore, we're taxing you on it. And the way they tax you on it is they are going to take the list price of the car, they're going to times that then by the car's CO2 emissions, and it'll have a, a different bracket for that, and then they'll also look at your income tax bracket as well. So you could be a 20% taxpayer, a 40% taxpayer, or a 45% taxpayer, let's say. But fundamentally, benefits in kind in their most simple version will work in the effect of, say you've got a £100 in benefit and you're a 20% taxpayer, you're going to be paying 20% tax on that. Therefore, you'll have a tax bill each month of £20. It's not going to look like that exactly because you'll have that at the end of the tax year. But in effect, it's that £20 if you're a 20% taxpayer or £40 if you're a 40% taxpayer, so on and so forth. That isn't really taken into account. So when people are looking at that total estimated monthly cost and they're looking at that Jaguar I-Pace at £343, fantastic. What they're not doing is adding on each month the benefit in kind taxation that they will have to pay as well. It's kind of like a little bit of hidden taxation, but again, it's worth being aware of 
and there's not many people that would point it out to you. Definitely not the car salesman, probably not your payroll department. You're probably just going to get that reducted, reduced from your salary. And that is obviously why obtaining specific advice for any of these types of decisions is so important. One of the big things, and actually I would say the main question that I was asked when we went to the RJAH was what exactly do lasting powers of attorney do and how do you put them in place? My colleagues have already went through the entire process of what they are and how to put them in place. Again, the only thing that I would say is lasting powers of attorney, two different types, property and financial affairs and health and welfare decisions. And it is effectively you the person giving the lasting power of attorney that is appointing somebody else or other individuals to be able to act in your place if you can no longer do so yourself. So they can make those financial decisions or decisions on your health if you cannot do so. Again, I would just say, have a look into them, take advice and get all of the information that you need about the benefit of having them in place because the alternative when you don't have them in place and unfortunately if you were to lose your capacity is something known as a deputyship and that is not necessarily a route that many people would want to go down. Okay, I'm quite glad you you mentioned that as well, David, the, uh, the LPAs, is because the final part of our seminar was all about helping people find a correct path through really uncertain times. We've been through Brexit, still going through that. Uh, we went through COVID and now we're feeling the hangover from that. Um, we're going through the conflict in Ukraine. Whenever you get challenging times, it's almost as though media outlets go on to absolutely high alert and you're just bombarded with crises you need to be aware of and also tips and different things that you need to do to make sure you've buttoned down the hatches correctly. Not to mention that you've got a day job to focus on doing as well. And so it can be quite confusing. And that's why Laura said, can you put some things in there as to what people really need to be doing with their money during these uncertain times? So the easiest way of doing that was actually by... (laughs) basically giving quite a shameless plug to my book. So I've written a book, it comes out in May 2023, and it is actually about prioritizing your finances in the right way. So let me just explain that quickly. You've got a guy in 1943 who bore a very interesting resemblance to Manuel from Faulty Towers, and this guy was called Abraham Maslow. And in 1943, Abraham Maslow created what we now call the hierarchy of needs. And fundamentally, what he postulated, always wanted to use that word, was humans have five basic sets of needs. And they go like this. First, you should start off with your physiological needs, which is food, water, shelter. Once you've fulfilled that need, you should be moving on to the next, which is safety, such as security of employment and security for your family and your property. Once you've fulfilled that need, you should then be moving on to kind of love and belonging, such as having a nice family around you, friends, and maybe an even an intimate relationship. Beyond that, you then move on to esteem, which is related to having people respect you and respecting others. And then finally, self-fulfillment, which is actively going out and searching for problems. So fundamentally, Maslow was trying to say, 
until you have fulfilled a need, that need should really be monopolizing your consciousness. And I think he even went so far as to say, if anything is seen as a threat or could thwart that need, it should be seen as a fundamental threat. And I know the guy was writing this during World War II, so it's quite strong wording from Maslow there. Um, but I think he's got a point. The reason being is because in society, and this was actually a weakness that Maslow pointed out himself in 1943, was that society will constantly push us to move up the hierarchy of needs quicker than we should do. So, for example, before we've properly sorted out our security of employment for our, ourselves, our family and our property, we'll we'll look at our neighbours, for example, who've just got a flashy new car or they're going on lovely holidays and then we think, oh, we want to do that too. And therefore we put it on credit cards and we take out personal loans and so on. But what you're doing is you're fundamentally jeopardising the, the structure. And this is quite frequently drawn as a pyramid because it's a hierarchy of needs. But the way I like to ask people to think about it, and I showed it in the seminar, was as a block of Jenga. So let's just think you've got that very bottom block there's only one there. There's lots above it. That's a bit like getting your priorities in the wrong order. It doesn't take a genius to know that when you start playing midway up the Jenga tower, it could come crumbling down very easily because it's unstable. I've applied this to finance. Now, for finance, at the bottom of that Jenga tower, I've put insurance. Ensuring your ability to earn an income. Without your income, any thoughts you have about the future, whether that be ticking off bucket list items or just the general standard of living you want, when you want to retire, so on and so forth. It's all a bit futile if you haven't insured your ability to earn an income, which means that in principle, your health is your most valuable asset. Beyond that, have an emergency fund because life will throw things at you. The boiler will break down, the car tires will pop and because it's almost like a law of physics, you will have a third thing that will come along at the same time as well and demand some money of you. Have a fund in place. It might be a multiple of your outgoings, such as three times your monthly outgoings. Just always keep that in cash so that you can always weather the storm. Now that you've done that, you've got a pretty solid base to your Jenga tower. Okay, there's lots of blocks there and we can start to do some more interesting things. So now, for example, you can start thinking about investing. Beyond that, you can think about retirement. And then finally, you can start thinking about your legacy and inheritance and how are you going to give those assets away in a way that fundamentally doesn't give too much to HMRC <laughs> and helps future generations. How do you use that during challenging times? Well, number one, make sure you're always working from a very solid base. If you go on Instagram and you see something that's saying, you should invest in cryptocurrency. Just think, okay, well, that falls into the investing bracket. Have I fully insured my ability to earn an income? If, for example, I exceed my sick pay, um, if I'm in an accident or an injury or something to that effect, and if the proverbial does hit the fan, can I withstand that and pay for it out of some cash, not on a credit card? If you're ticking yes to those, by all means, then start looking at investing. Thanks for that, Jack. That's really insightful as to what people should be prioritizing, not just NHS staff, but any general individual should be prioritizing in, in their life when it comes to their finances. But I, I do remember something that really hit home with me 
on our seminar was an anecdote, or actually it was a real-life example you provided about providing that solid foundation and when somebody did not look into their insurance as much as they probably should have. So if you can just expand on that a little bit and, and give our listeners some real food for thought to take away from this podcast yeah sure so it was um it was right at the back end of the of the seminar and i just thought this was quite a nice way of showing why you need to get your priorities in the right order and there's there's really no simpler substitute for um for for that when you're looking at facing challenging times and just getting your your affairs in order the story is and i'm i'm anonymizing this because it's a real life story so i was approached by a consultant they weren't happy with the amount they were paying on their critical illness insurance now critical illness insurance is a form of health insurance that if you are diagnosed with an illness on the list of things covered on your policy, it pays you a lump sum, okay? And that's usually somewhere along the lines of maybe paying you three times your salary or maybe even paying off the mortgage, depending on what you can afford. This particular consultant, they were senior. They were, had actually massively reduced their working hours in the NHS and they were doing a lot of private work with Spire and Nuffield and so on. They were earning about £300,000 per year. They came to me and said, this critical illness policy, I've had it a while now. I've just had a letter from the provider. It's going to be going up to £100 per month. I've been paying 90 I used to pay 70 for example. It's going up. I don't like it. Is there anything we can do about this? Can I get a new policy that's cheaper, please? I took a look at it. And like I said, this is the sort of policy where if you have an illness that's on the list and you are diagnosed with that, it pays out. So the policy is only as good as the things it covers. The list... When I looked at it, basically giving a yes or a no as to whether it covers that illness or not, was basically a shower of red. It really covered next to nothing. And I said to him, this might as well be a life assurance policy because you might as well have popped your clogs by the time it's going to pay out fundamentally. If I was you, I would actually get a far more comprehensive policy because this thing's never going to pay out. So it's almost a moot point whether you don't like paying that extra amount each month because all of it is pretty much a waste for the purposes that you're looking for. You're looking for this to cover you through heart attack, cancer, stroke, lesser advanced types of cancers, for example, such as um, prostate. It's not covering you for any of that. It doesn't cover a single less advanced cancer. Um, it doesn't cover heart failure. It doesn't cover an aortic aneurysm, for example. Now, let's take a look at what a comprehensive policy is. So I showed him policy B, which was a shower of green in complete contrast. I said, look, this is this is kind of the best out there. So we can we can move back from this slightly. But I just want to show you what this is, what it provides cover for and how much it costs. So it covered every single thing that he wanted it to, that he expected it to. And also within the category of less advanced cancers, that might just have a one yes next to it. But that in itself covers bile duct, breast, colon, rectum, lungs, esophagus, pancreas, prostate, skin, testicles, thyroids, urinary bladder, so on and so forth. That's like a policy within itself. So when I was comparing the two, I said, okay, you've got either a very incomprehensive policy or a comprehensive policy. Currently, you don't want to pay £100 per month. The comprehensive policy is going to cost you 152 but he still certainly had more than enough room within his disposable income to pay that £152. 
Left him with that information and he said that he didn't want to go ahead. Two months later, he contacted me and said, Jack, bad news. I've been diagnosed with quite an aggressive form of prostate cancer. What is there that I can do about that? Well, straight away, I said, unfortunately, as I said, your critical illness policy isn't going to pay out. That's not on the list. Okay, what can I do? I said, well, luckily you have over time built up sizable ISAs and savings and investments. You're going to have to rely on that because your NHS sick pay is only based on the very small amount of hours you do in the NHS. The majority of your hours are outside of the NHS privately for which you don't get sick pay. He ended up um, basically financing over about a two-year period where he could basically not work due to chemotherapy, surgery and so on, and just getting back to 100% fitness. He basically had to spend all of his savings to that point on funding that lifestyle because that lifestyle was the kids going to private school, the mortgage, the cars on the drive. You can't just throw that away even if you do have to weather a storm. He was around age 55 um, that severely impacted when he could retire and what that retirement would look like as well. Had he just put in place a very solid foundation, he wouldn't be in that position. And that was absolutely gutting to see when it was completely unavoidable. So when we are faced with uncertain times, the best thing you can do is number one, prioritise, start off with your most valuable asset, which is your health. Absolutely, Jack. And although that is a bit of a diner to finish on, I think it perfectly illustrates why we're going in and speaking to people, not just in hospitals, but generally to give them the information so they can arm themselves and take advice where it is required. Thank you, Jack. Thanks to David and to Jack for lending their expertise. If you have a legal issue you'd like me to put to the team to cover in an upcoming episode, please let me know by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. If you found the conversation useful, please remember to follow or subscribe on your app so you're notified of new releases. Speak to you soon. That was the Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.